0: We turn our attention now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, and a message entitled God Alone Is. We're continuing in our series, Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church, and we'll look at these few short verses, and I'll read them here in just a moment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy, who's serving as the pastor at the church at Ephesus. The importance of teaching and offering sound instruction to the church. He wanted the people of God to build their lives on a solid foundation, and he wanted them to be warned of false teachers, people who would lead them astray with things that were not true. And he gives specific instruction on remembering the importance of godliness with contentment, warning against the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil. He tells Timothy the things that he was to flee from and what he was to run toward and reminds him to take hold of eternal life, which is given in Christ. In verses 13 through 16, there is a charge that is issued. This charge focuses on God who alone is. Now begin reading in verse 13. In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. As we think about the importance of focusing on God, who alone is, we're reminded that by nature we are self-centered in some measure and to some degree. It's, in fact, a healthy thing in some ways to have a good understanding of yourself and remain healthy and strong. It can help you to remain grounded and uh, as long as you implement those boundaries in your life that are good. But the problem is when that focus is unhealthy and self becomes the priority over your relationship with God and who he is. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes argued all the way back in the 1600s that the most fundamental human motivation is self-interest. We are experts on ourselves, and there are some good things about that, but when it becomes selfish, narcissistic, and self-absorbed, then we get ourselves in all sorts of trouble spiritually. Everything in the universe revolves around God. We are not the center of it all. God is righteous, and he does what is righteous in the world and his character and all of his actions bring glory to himself. I like the way the Apostles Creed begins. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. A very straightforward statement that says to us that God is the creator who has made all that there is, and he made it out of nothing. I think about God's words to Job when Job was having some issues in his understanding and God took him to task in Job 38. He said, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? He was reminding Job of his humble position before God and the need to see God for who he truly is. Now, verse 13 refers to when Jesus gave his testimony before Pontius Pilate. And the comment about Pontius Pilate uh, actually became a part of some early Christian creeds. The phrase good confession is used here, and also in the previous verse, making a parallel between the confession that Timothy was to give as a believer and Jesus giving his testimony concerning who he is as the Messiah. Verse 14 gives us a direct command to Timothy that he is to keep this command without fault or failure. That means to be unstained. It comes from a word that literally referred to a garment that had no permanent stains in it at all. It was pure. And our lives, just as Timothy's life, was to be the pursuit of a clean life, a pure life, free from immorality, to maintain this without failure until the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now the term, uh, the appearing of Christ, definitely refers to the return of Jesus, during which time he's going to render judgment on Timothy, not for his sins, but concerning his service to the Lord, just as he will for us. But it's referring to a visible manifestation, the reality of Jesus returning. And there are attributes of God in verses 15 and 16 that focus on who God is. And they serve in a way to remind us of where we should place our faith and our confidence. So this is not just theological ideas that are out there somewhere this is not just some intellectual exercise, though it is very much that. It's a reminder to us of who God is so that in response we can worship God properly and we can keep him in focus as we should. It forms a doxology of sorts, a short poetic praise of God. We've already seen one of those back in chapter 1 in verse 17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The first thing that we should know from this passage is that God is the blessed and only sovereign. He is blessed. And the Greek word for blessed that is used here typically means happy or enlarged. It can also be translated as favored. The Hebrew word that is most often translated as bless in the Old Testament means to kneel. It's the idea of honoring God. So we have two perspectives of this. One is ascribing to God what he already possesses. So in other words, we're not adding something to God here. We're not increasing God in some way. We're simply recognizing who God is. He is the blessed and only sovereign. But then our action is we are kneeling before him. So, because of who he is, we in turn are honoring him for who he is. Think about Psalm 104 and verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. If you go back and read the Psalms, the Psalms are chock full of uh, commands to bless the Lord. Psalm 134 and verse 1 and 2 says, Come, bless the Lord, all the servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to this holy place and bless the Lord. Our God is the fountain and source of all blessings. So if it's a temporal blessing and it's good and it's righteous, it's come from God. If it's a spiritual blessing, then it's come from God. If it's an eternal blessing, then it has come from God. The blessed God is the source of blessing for his creation. He is blessed in himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and he is eternally so. Now, the idea of the blessed God points in part to the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity is not a biblical word. It is, though, a theological concept ...that tells us something about the independence and the self-existence of God. The word aseity comes from a Latin phrase meaning from or by himself. And it expresses well who God is because by definition... ...it is the quality or the state of being self-derived, self-originated, and self-sufficient. So let me state it to you more plainly. God has no needs... God in no way is deficient. He did not create the universe or us because he was lacking in any way. God was not lonely. Everything originated in him and he sustains all that exists. So we believe that everything find it, finds its source, its existence, and its sustaining power through God. So when we say God is blessed, what we are saying is we are recognizing that God is complete in and of himself. He's not lacking in anything. He is sufficient in and of himself, in the perfection of his nature. And when we recognize that God is blessed, it means that we recognize his great richness, his strength, his grace, his mercy, and all of the characteristics that go along with who he is. And as the people of God, we are blessed in every way. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed in the English language also carries with it the idea of being made holy or consecrated when it applies to us. So when it's focusing on us and we're saying we are blessed, what we're saying is, God has consecrated us for himself, and he has blessed us with things that we would not otherwise have had. And part of that blessing is to be in Christ, to know him, to walk with him, to experience him, and the greatest treasure that we have is the treasure of knowing God. It's the blessing of being in Christ and having a relationship with him. Now it says also that he is the only sovereign. The sovereign is the ruler or the potentate, to use an old word, over all things. God's over all the nations of the earth. God possesses all power and authority. So think about it this way. God knows all that there is to know. He's omniscient. God has all the power that there is to have. He is omnipotent. God is everywhere at once. He is omnipresent. And in this, he has the authority and the wisdom and the power to do anything that is consistent with his holy character. And one thing you can be certain of is that God always perfectly and eternally acts consistently with his holy character. He has made himself known to us. God is the self-revealing God. He's made himself known to us through creation and through his word and ultimately through his son. And in making himself known to us, He is showing us how to respond to him in faith. And God never leads us to do anything that is inconsistent with his character or with his word. So often I'll hear people say, well, I know the Bible says, but I think God's telling me to do this. Okay, you can be 100% certain that if you start out with the statement, I know that God says, but it's not God that's telling you that. You're getting it from some other source, yourself or the devil or the world or something that is not consistent with who God is. Now, interestingly, there's a perspective on the sovereignty of God that wrongly demands that God must do anything he is capable of doing or he is not sovereign. And here's what I mean by this. It can be illustrated in this way. If a man were to put an ant in a bowl The sovereignty of the man over the ant is not in doubt. The ant can try to crawl out, and the man may not want it to. But the man is not forced to crush, drown, or pick up the ant. The man, for his own reasons, can let the ant crawl away and yet still be in control. The man allows the ant to leave the bowl versus helplessly watching it escape. And some propose the idea that God's sovereignty implies that if the man does not hold the ant inside the bowl, then it's because he's unable to keep it there in the first place. And here's how this applies to the sovereignty of God. God can do as he pleases, but in his sovereignty, he often chooses to allow certain things to take place for his own sovereign purposes, and his will is accomplished even through it. This works within the framework of the responsibility of man, of the free will that God has given to us, even in its fallen condition. It works within the consequences of the fall of man and the evil that followed in the world. And God can't be blamed for any of it because God acts perfectly within his character. But in doing so, he draws us to himself. He carries out his will and God is sovereign even when the immediate circumstances may not be completely understandable to us. God is the blessed and only sovereign. Second, you should know that God is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In ancient times, it was common for emperors to be deified. Sometimes we think about that being only in the days of Rome, but it actually was happening long before that. Uh, The people of Asia Minor, for example, had always viewed their kings as being uh, divine in some way. Uh, The concept in the world that would hold to something similar today would be the situation in North Korea. Uh, I've not particularly studied it. I'm certain there are other places that are similar in nature. But the history of it uh, really begins to expand during the time of the Roman Empire, The Roman Empire expanded eastward near the end of the 2nd century BC. Julius Caesar became emperor uh, and the movement for his deification grew even though in Rome the rulers had not been considered to be divine. When Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC, they claimed that there was this comet that burned so bright that you could see it in the daytime and that it burned for eight straight days the people wrongly made the connection that somehow this was a divine authentication of Caesar's deity. His adopted son, Octavian, proclaimed his father divine, and he also referred to himself as the son of God when he became emperor in 27 BC. He changed his name to Augustus. That's a title of supreme deity and divinity. And I say that to you because this was the type of culture that Paul was writing into. This was the type of situation that Timothy was serving in. And Paul is giving him a clear understanding that there is only one king of kings and Lord of lords. This declares the authority and the power of God. It means Lord of those who rule as lords. We find an indication of this in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17, where it says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Jewish literature also described God as king. Uh, In the East, rulers who claimed to be supreme kings, like the Babylonian or the Parthian king, actually referred to themselves as king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, The Greek writers would occasionally apply the same title to Zeus, the mythical god. But here in the scripture, as the king of kings, God is supreme. We're saying something very simple, and yet it is incredibly profound. God is supreme, and there is none who is greater than him. They were told that from the beginning, but even so, the children of Israel struggled with idolatry. It became a perpetual problem. Idolatry is the sin of worshiping an idol or anything that's a substitute for God, something in place of the one true living God. It happened over and over again among God's people. You remember that Jacob told members of his family to get rid of their foreign gods before they arrived in Bethel in Genesis 35. The first time that the entire nation of Israel got caught up in idolatry was when they began to worship the golden calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. During the time of the judges, uh, God's people turned to false gods and idol worship. And then during the later years of King Solomon, there was this pattern of idolatry that began to develop over and over again. Then when the kingdom was divided, all of the northern kingdom of Israel eventually committed idolatry. And then many of the southern kings of Judah did as well. And time and again, the scripture is clear that we are to have no other gods but him. There is only one God, and God alone is worthy of our worship. Now, when we think about who God is as king, we recognize that a king is intended to maintain justice, to provide for their subjects, and then also to protect. And that's what God does for us. He rules over all, he provides for us, and he also protects us. And as Lord of lords, there is no other. There's a parallel to the Lord of Lords in the Old Testament. In Psalm 97 and verse 1, it says the Lord reigns. And then in verse 5, it says the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So our God is the greatest ruler. He is the mightiest king. He is the Lord and king over all. He is the most powerful ruler. He is the highest chief of all. And when we begin to apply this to Jesus... What we are saying in our confession, Jesus is Lord, is we are saying Jesus is Yahweh. He is God who has come in the flesh as the second person of the Trinity. God is one in essence and he is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal. And when we read of what is coming in the future, in the fall of Babylon, the overthrow of the false prophet, the beast and the dragon, we behold the great white horse and a rider with his vesture dipped in blood. And upon the thigh of that rider is written the name, King of kings and Lord of lords is nothing less than the great triumph and victory of Jesus Christ the Lord when all wrongs will be made right and all will be right at last. And Jesus is given the full title in Revelation 19 and verse 16 that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is where our worship is, our allegiance, our focus, and our hope. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has dominion over all of creation and eternity. And there is none who can oppose him and win. Our hope is in him. And then third, we should know, God is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. It says God alone is immortal. He alone is the only uncreated, self-existent being. He alone is eternal. Now, this week, I googled the phrase, the pursuit of immortality. Just out of curiosity. How interested are people in immortality? How interested are people in death? How interested are people in what's going to come in uh, the great beyond? And when I googled the pursuit of immortality, it returned, get this, 2,770,000 results. Turns out people are pretty interested in the great beyond. They're interested in what's coming next, even if they're not appropriately guided toward what that's going to be. One writer said, as long as we've been aware of death, we've searched for ways to avoid it. Today, people are turning to alchemical methods and empirical methods and, and questionable concepts like gene manipulation. They're talking about downloading their consciences into computers and all kinds of wild stuff. People are freezing themselves and trying to last forever. In fact, there are facilities in the United States and abroad, get this, that are basically warehouse morgues of frozen bodies waiting for the future. And yet the statistics remain. Other than Elijah, who went to heaven on a chariot of fire and Enoch who walked with God and then he was not. From a physical perspective, one out of one people, that's hundred percent for those of you in the back who die. That's all of us. We're in the same boat, but our God is immortal. Now the soul of everybody is going to live forever somewhere, heaven or hell. But God gives eternal life to all who believe in Jesus. Now, if you're interested in the great beyond, and you're interested in what's going to happen after this life, would you not want to go to the source, the one who controls it? Would you not want to go to the one who is able to help you, to deliver you, to save you? to give you the gift of eternal life? Google's not going to give you the answer unless it's giving you the answer about Jesus. But he's our hope. And it says here that God lives in unapproachable light. This is a reminder that God's glory is magnificent in splendor. His holiness is unsurpassed. We cannot look at the sun safely for long without damaging our eyes and being blinded and even losing our sight. And the unapproachable light of God is so far beyond the sunlight that there's not even any comparison. It doesn't even compare. And no one has seen him or can see him. God the Father is spirit. He cannot be confined to our human senses. But now you know where I'm going with this. He condescended to reveal himself to us in Jesus as the visible manifestation of the invisible. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God has made himself known in various times and in various ways, but he has preeminently made himself known to us through his son. He has made himself known to us through his creation, and we can see the wisdom of intelligent design, of divine order, of the creative hand and power of an eternal god he has revealed himself to us through his word god has spoken why we know what we know about god is because god has communicated us himself to us through his word but he has preeminently shown himself to us through his son in john chapter 6 and verse 46 says not that any man has seen the father except the one who is from god he has seen the father and jesus came to show us Who God is and where our faith should be placed. God is immortal and he lives in unapproachable light. And I say to you as I come toward a close, to God be honor and eternal power. It's all his. That's why we're here. And if in your life you're thinking about religion or going through the motions or trying to be a good person or any of these things that are in and of themselves separated from God, you're going down the wrong path. And when we come here today, why are we here? We're not here because we couldn't find something else to do, we're not just here out of obligation. We're here out of obedience, and we're here out of a spirit of worship because we want to give glory to God. We want to properly credit to him what is due and say to God be honor and eternal power. I close with this brief story. Louis the Fourteenth was the king of France in the last part of the 17th century and the early part of the 18th century. He called himself the Sun King, S-U-N, He claimed that he was the nation of France. And overall, he had an ego that would probably put most politicians to shame. And that's saying a lot. But like all humanity, he eventually died. His funeral was held in the cathedral of Notre Dame. They held it in the evening. And they lit the cathedral up with hundreds of burning candles in order to create an atmosphere of reverence for the king. Macillan was the archbishop of the cathedral, and he was assigned to preach the funeral sermon. So when time came, the archbishop steps out of the side door, and he makes his way slowly in front of the king's casket, and then he ascends up into the pulpit. It was a raised pulpit, as you see in the great cathedrals in Europe. The place became completely silent. And everybody waited. Every eye was on him. What would the archbishop say about the great king? How would he describe him and his many accomplishments? And he waited a moment. And then he looked at the congregation and he said this. Only God is great. And then he repeated it again. Only God is great. And he was absolutely right. In our lives, we will serve ourselves, our families, our friends, our world, and our God well. If we keep in mind that God is the center of reality. And he alone is great. Now, Here's what this says to us practically as individuals and as a church. There are a lot of things you could focus on in your life. There are many things you have to focus on in your life as the regular responsibilities and stewardship of the things that you've been given. As long as you're doing that with an understanding of God as the center of it all, as the source, the provider, and the redeemer of your life, you'll be okay. But it is a constant struggle in the flesh to keep our eyes Upward and our allegiance toward God. It is a daily surrender, is what it requires. And it is so easy for us as individuals and as a church to get our eyes distracted, to get our hearts off focus, and to emphasize things that ultimately aren't ultimate. And that's a warning and an encouragement for us as the church that we say, Together and to one another, only God is great. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. You know what will happen when we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith? We'll draw closer together as well. Just as we came to this Lord's table today, and a reminder of the unity that we have in Christ, we're drawn to him and we're drawn together. And there's a whole world out there that doesn't yet know him. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually, but if you are in Christ, would you ask God to help you focus on who he is? God alone is in your life. Ask him to help you with your motivations and the emphases of your life and your walk with him. If you don't know Christ today, today would be a good day to be saved. You say, I know I've never been forgiven of my sins. I've not received Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Friend, he's coming again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now's the time to get ready. Would you trust him? Father, I thank you for your blessing in our lives. Thank you for the truth that draws us together and lifts our eyes toward you. Thank you for making yourself known to us preeminently through your son, for giving us your word, for showing us your power every day around us. Lord, help us from the distractions that would take us off course, build our unity as the body of Christ, help us to surrender our entire being to you so that you would be glorified through us. We give this time of closing and response over to you and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.